Um, my name's um, Yorick Small, and I'm a senior lecturer at um, Griffith University, a historian who works in childhood and sex and gender and war and society. And it's my very great pleasure to be able to introduce the keynote speaker for this conference, uh, Professor Chris Brickle, who has for many years been a good friend and colleague. It seems apt that I provide some very brief comments here today in Sydney, for it was in this very city almost a decade ago that Chris and I first met at a conference on the history of sex and sexuality at Macquarie University. And from there, a close personal and intellectual affinity blossomed. I've been very fortunate to share my work with Chris over the Tasman in the intervening years, reading drafts, sharing our personal professional interests and intellectual challenges and perspectives by Zoom and Skype as we are today and in person, often over, quote, a wee cup of tea, as Chris would say in his distinct New Zealand accent that invokes its distinct regional Scottish heritage. Chris holds a PhD in sociology and held a postdoctoral fellowship in history, and he is currently Professor of Gender Studies at Otago University in Dunedin in New Zealand's South Island. Chris's most recent book is Teenagers, the Rise of Youth History in New Zealand, published by Auckland University Press in 2017. Teenagers focuses on both cultural change in New Zealand society since the mid-19th century, embedded in broader global shifts involved in the rise of the concept of adolescence and the teenager in the years prior to the 1970s. At the same time, these wide-ranging international social patterns are illustrated through extensive use of personal stories and narratives and a great many photographs, some of which we will see this afternoon, in order to think about how private lives tell us about public issues. Chris's latest book has been lauded for its scale and scope, with Melissa Belanta describing it as panoramic, with a wonderful teeming sense of past lives and sensibilities. The bringing together of social shifts and personal lives is also a feature of Chris's earlier work, including his award-winning book, Mates and Lovers, A History of Gay New Zealand, published by Random House in 2008. And this book unearthed a long, detailed and vivid history that many New Zealanders knew little about. Once again, life stories were crucial. A number of other books, including Manly Affections, the photographs of Robert Gant, and Southern Men, Gay Lives and Pictures also explore the connections between biography, affect and image. Chris's other areas of research include histories of social science in New Zealand, a reconsideration of cultural politics in the 1950s, the relationships between objects and affect, and the changing forms and spaces of masculinity. On a personal note, one of the things that first struck me about Chris's work in its various forms is his talent for weaving together the personal and the theoretical, the affective and the concrete, and the visual and the written archive. His narrative style is unfussy, evocative and powerful. One of the delights of Chris's work for me is that it not only analyzes and synthesizes a vast array of evidence within the disciplinary conventions that shape and inform our historical practice in order to tell readers about actors in their worlds, but that Chris's work shows audiences 
how folks inhabited a material environment populated by both character and sensation. I now invite Chris to share with us those lives, labours and loves. Please welcome me in welcoming our keynote speaker, Chris Brickle. Kia ora koutou. Thank you, Yorick, so much for that introduction that made me blush terribly. I know I'm on a huge screen, so you may or may not be able to see um, my red cheeks. Um, I'd like to say, too, that I wish I was there. Unfortunately, family illness have been that I, I couldn't come, but I've been looking forward to this all week. And I feel a bit like a cross between a conference presenter and a kind of infomercial um, coming from the distance. You'll, you'll notice there's actually a very kind a sexy photo of Dunedin and Otago University clock tower behind me and actually today the weather was kind of nice so Dunedin did look like this today it doesn't always um, what I want to do today is to think about the relationships between young people cultural change imagery and ideas about um, freedom and constraint and the way that those things are woven together in some quite complicated ways in this really interesting period of history. I'm focusing on New Zealand, of course, but, but, but this is a, a really interesting transitional period, 1890, 1940, of course, marked in the middle by the First World War. I'm going to talk a little bit about war, not, not overly though. I'm going to start uh, where everyone should, with the flapper. And then have a bit of a think about how to move forward from the flapper and thinking about these relationships between social change and individual lives. So the Evening Post, a Wellington newspaper, picked up the theme of the flapper in 1914, suggesting that she wore fashionable clothes and ran around offices at the most critical time of her life. When she ventured outdoors, she talked loudly in the streets, giggling and swearing, and in the weekends, of course, she headed off to the seaside to sunbathe and show off. And here she is in Wellington uh, at one of the beaches. The flapper really did challenge adults' ideas about young people, about morality, about gender, about uh, public, public and private space, uh, women's work, and the challenges of those in a, uh, in a society that, that was changing. As a cultural phenomenon, I think the flapper spoke to a pair of competing trends that emerged during the late 19th century and shaped the decade that followed. New Zealand historian James Ballage suggested that New Zealand society, he said, tightened up like a giant spanner in the decades after 1880-1890, the result of a successful moral crusade by those who promoted self-restraint, self temperance and probity. Its after-effects, he adds, kept things tight until the 1960s. Uh, I argue, though, that this is a really considerable oversimplification and one that actually uh, means that we don't perhaps look as much at the complexities of social and cultural change as we might do. One of the local critiques of Balich's key thesis, which I'm going to use as a bit of a launching off point this afternoon, um, was by Auckland historian Caroline Daly, who says rather amusingly, I think rightly, if a giant spanner was needed to tighten New Zealand society, then presumably some people's morals were very loose indeed. 
You do not organise crusades for moral harmony unless you are convinced that they are warranted. It's a very acidic and very wonderful kind of critique. Um, and, when, and when we look at the, some of the kind of representations from the time, we think that perhaps maybe she has a point. This was actually an Australian magazine, The Dead Bird, which was published in the 1890s, but circulated really widely in New Zealand. And you can get a sense of why it would be that such a, a, a comic book style representation would exercise the minds of the um, probity-filled and um, high-minded. So as Daly hints, I think, the moral crusaders that Balich talks about were noisy and they notched up some successes, but New Zealand society also eased back during the period. And I'd be really interested in, in the question time to sort of, um, for your input, to um, help me think through how some of these themes perhaps were or were not reflected in other, um, in other places globally. Clearly, as this Australian um, example shows, there was a kind of a resonance with Australia. I want to suggest, though, that what actually happened in the decades after 1890 was something of a double movement, a simultaneous tightening and loosening, more than one thing going on at once. But maybe it was, in fact, even more than that, a kind of a dialectic in which both impulses worked with and against one another to push forward social change, and maybe not just for young people. If we take on board, for instance, Stuart Hall's observation during the 1970s that, that young people were often harbingers of a, um, a broader set of shifts, kind of at, at the cutting edge of social change at your like, um, if you like. So we, we had movements that I'm going to talk about uh, uh, briefly, such things as Bible class and scouts and guides and the rest, which did on one hand regulate young lives, but on another hand, um, they made room for a new sociability, I think. So even one kind of specific movement has more than one thing going on. Militarism was no doubt very significant in New Zealand society at that time, but so too was the urbanisation that kind of started to foster a kind of a bohemian kind of impulse among young men as well as young women. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the cinema and the way in which this really started to, um, to work, young people work with this to drive social as well as personal change think a little bit about advertising, uh, and as I mentioned, come back to the flapper at the end. So I'd like to suggest that adolescent bodies symbolise social change during the first decades of the new century. Rational dress and bodily mobility were signs of modernity, and British historians have suggested that girls embraced feminism as a result or, um, as a revolt, sorry, against the old-fashioned world of their parents. Some, some young women argued against the corset, others played competitive sports with their friends and embraced the broader concept of women's rights. A young writer in the star gen, uh, gestured towards new horizons. She suggested we are evolving into a race of tumultuous, tornado-like girls whose hearts rebel against housewifery. In thinking about early 20th century feminism, I guess one of the, one of the differences globally, of course, uh, is going to be around the impact of women's suffrage. In New Zealand, women gained the right to vote early in 1893. To some extent, this provided a bit of a backdrop to 
um, young women's lives in the early part, very early part of the 20th century. Maybe things were different in the UK, uh, for instance, where suffrage was later. So yeah, interesting to think about that too. The ins and outs of 20th century feminism, I think, uh, appear quite contradictory to a 21st century mind. On the one hand, first wave feminists enc encourage girls to move about and build up their bodies, and the physical culture craze appealed to many. They took up the dumbbells and Eugene Sandow's fitness system. Um, new ideas about bodily mobility suited colonial girls' lives. One of the things about uh, adolescence in New Zealand, of course, is that outdoor cultures, as we'll see, were very, very strong. So, so young New Zealanders lived outside a lot of the time. The urban areas were not particularly densely packed in terms of urban form. Uh, and so parks and um, escapes were, were relatively, relatively close by. The, the cities were not huge. They were proximate to uh, the rural um, areas, even though many New Zealanders did live in cities, even, even by 1890. So at the same time, new modes of social regulation impeded girls' demands for self-determination. And Balich suggests that many early 20th century feminists did support attempts to achieve the tight society, as he, as he called it. And there's no doubt that, that many first-wave feminists did hold older ideas about family life and wanted to reassert the place of the wife and mother, um, often embraced eugenics. But at the same time, it's very, very clear that the focus on young women's mobility and facilitating that was very much a part of the New Zealand first-wave feminist project. Girls' embodiment changed again in the, in the lead up to and during the First World War. So flappers' fashions, for instance, underwent a transformation as the 1910s drew to a close. This is an image from about 1925 from the first um, New Zealand Miss New Zealand Beauty contest. Many of the contestants were in their teens, uh, and in fact the winner and runner-up, I think, were 18 and 15, I think. So, so again, young, young women, adolescent uh, women were, were very much at the forefront of this kind of movement. The other, the other thing I think to kind of, uh, to sort of set in place was the, was the significance of consumer society. We, we often sort of come to think of consumer society as something, certainly in New Zealand we do, uh, that emerged really during the 1950s. One of the things that struck me when I looked at this is that there's a really interesting gendered split. So in New Zealand, boys don't really appear as consumers at all until the 1960s, and even then only occasionally. Girls, on the other hand, um, are almost prototypical consumers for a new generation. And so, for instance, magazines like the, the, those targeted at uh, Girl Guides were also places where young women learned about the pleasures of consumption, particularly consumption that had to do with the body. So the ad that you're seeing on the right-hand side of the screen is an advertisement for Lifebuoy Soap, talking about feminine loveliness and health and, um, and being nice and fight against dirt. So there are kind of, again, semi-eugenic overtones, but at the same time, appearance and beauty and a kind of modernity appears here, 
even more strongly, I think, in the advertisement on the left-hand side of the screen, where uh, what we're seeing for uh, what we're seeing here is an advertisement for pantyhose, and the fact that these things appeared in magazines targeted uh, solely at girls and young women, I think, is really is is really interesting. So there's that sort of sense of a kind of a freedom. At the same time, not all girls did see this in terms of freedom, particularly those who felt that they didn't fit very well into the straight up and down body shape that the flapper suggested would be the most kind of desirable. So there was a set of tensions that the modern girl in New Zealand was expected to tread, essentially to keep up a reasonable degree of fitness, to follow fashion, to look forward to being a mother, but maybe in the meantime to train for an office job, even though one's life in the future may look somewhat different than that. So I think we can see the flapper as a product of a complex shifts in the gender order. Um, someone who pushed femininity's boundaries in some respects while maintaining others. Okay, so what about boys? What was going on? There was less said in the news media about adolescent boys than there was about adolescent girls. But nevertheless, there are glimmers. So in the 1880s, there's a figure of the masher, the dashing young man about town, popular with young women, who then sort of uh, became a number of other figures at the start of the 20th century. So by 1913, we have the nut, who was a callow young man with a long fringe and a, lo a, a low-cut waistcoat and a cane and a cigarette and black silk tie and passionate socks, which is very much not the image that you kind of get when you think about New Zealand masculinity, which was so often defined by a farming, rural or labouring kind of masculinity. So there's a glimmer of a new urban, urbane, somewhat a feat kind of um, boy, young man who appears um, not entirely unwelcome, but not entirely welcome either in New Zealand's media. There's talk about the boy flapper and the jazz boy, a gay young rooster who sported a skirted coat with a split up the back, a shirt with four inch collar, a wide necktie and a green or pink handkerchief. I'm a big believer in pink handkerchiefs, so I'm actually quite sympathetic to this kind of um, portrayal. And so the newspapers were not entirely sure what to make of this new dashing young man. One example of whom is Ernie Weber, who's here in the, um, on the right-hand side of this image, taken in the city of Invercargill in the 1920s. I don't know, looks like he's sort of only perilously balancing on the back of a railway wagon. It's a slightly intriguing kind of image. Um, if you look carefully, you can see the striped... Um, the striped collar of his shirt, the ties, and the bow tie of his friend on the left in the very smart hats. New Zealand Truth was not entirely sympathetic. This was a kind of a fairly moralistic kind of, albeit socialist-leaning newspaper who said that this young man was in the grave risk of being shot in mistake for a, fe uh, in mistake for a pheasant adding, the real pheasant is of more value than his imitation in that he has the gastronomic virtue of being edible. So not entirely um, sympathetic. 
But I think at the same time, giving a sense of the kind of possibilities that were, um, that were coming into being for young men. Um, Ernie Weber on the right was also very athletic. Um, he took part in, um, in hockey and tramping um, and all manner of other kind of um, more kind of traditionally masculine pursuits, but also a very snappy dresser. And the very, very affluent New Zealanders, the young men may be given an allowance, they had money to spend on clothes. Uh, James Courage, who grew up in Canterbury in the 1920s, had an allowance of £80 per year, uh, which is massive. I actually should have translated it, but haven't. If you're vaguely interested in what £80 a year is, the New Zealand Treasury has a currency converter. So you can go in and type in £80 in 1921 currency, and then it will tell you what that equates in 2019 New Zealand dollars after inflation. So, yeah, there's just a little wee thing to do if you felt um, like Googling something later on. Now, I mentioned at the start militarism and this sort of militaristic kind of moment, which is very much represented by images such as this one of rows of young men at drill. The Defence Act of 1909 ordered those aged between 12, it was later revised to 14, and 18 to take part in cadet training. And so these cadets arrange themselves in rows, sometimes in parks, sometimes in school playgrounds, grabbing their wooden guns, their prop guns, and solid men in uniforms ordered them about. And you can see kind of some of the solid men at the front about to spring into action. And many, many photographs of young people in New Zealand in organised activity at this time, very much kind of concerned with moving around in rows. Um, boys did also, though, get the opportunity to go away out of town with their cadet groups and hang around the, the amusement um, opportunities, the fairs, um, exhibitions, and, um, and muck around. So even, even this kind of really densely packed, kind of lined up kind of militarism uh, allowed young people to, you know, have a degree of freedom sort of around the edges. Um, but the grim kind of reality of, um, of war sometimes did intrude, even though um, adolescent boys weren't actually sent to war. It's not to say some of them didn't go. And this very poignant photograph from World War I from Omaru um, of, a, of a young man, I presume with his sister. I've closely analysed their mouths and noses and I actually think there is a family resemblance there. But very kind of poignant and um, for about the first half a dozen times I looked at this image, I kind of wanted to cry because there's something, there is something very kind of um, uncertain um, about it. And then when you kind of look at the slaughter of first world, the First World War, it becomes quite, becomes quite poignant, I think. Now, just thinking about, I want to think next about jobs and schools and sexuality, which might seem a rather curious kind of combination to have in sequence. And I'm not entirely sure how deliberate it is that these things run together. But, but I think one of the things that was very significant at this point, and I know from um, reading international literature too, John Gillis has talked about this quite a lot, that you had um, among working class young people a kind of a certain um, critical mass of young people's lives came in through 
the factory subcultures, the, the rapid growth of factories and schools. And so um, high schooling became more uh, available in New Zealand. So the kind of young girls, for instance, who worked in match factories, who would um, spend their hours outside of factories together yelling at passers-by and swearing at them and enjoying kind of being rowdy in public, um, they were very much kind of creating a young person's culture that was both restrained by the industrial disciplines of the factory, but unconstrained by uh, the public spaces of the cities in which young women were becoming more and more visible. And young uh, boys and young men too, uh, their occupation of public space was conditioned by the kind of jobs that they were doing. So these are a number of telegraph boys from um, Omaru as well. And, and by looking at some of the sources, you see that these boys again, regimented in uniform, but also very much uh, enjoying the opportunities to hang around the picture theatres, the confectionery shops, the tea rooms, the shooting galleries that were sort of established during the 1920s in New Zealand. The bicycle was a tool of the trade, but it was also an instrument of freedom. So we really do have that kind of tacking backwards and forwards between um, regulation and freedom. Um, I'm not sure if by this point in the day you're kind of massively keen on statistics, but I've got just a couple for you here to illustrate the growth of the secondary school system. So in 1900, um, uh, secondary pupils over the age of 13. By 1910, there were 22,000, um, and enrolments climbed to 28,000 in 1920. Um, by 1939, 40% of 15-year-olds attended secondary school. So there's actually quite a rapid growth in these decades of secondary schools, which again were spaces of both constraint um, and soci sociability, socialization, that, that sort of development like the factories of friendship groups, which uh, often lasted young people through their entire lives. The same was said of apprenticeships in New Zealand's factories. So these were opportunities for young people to hang out, to become involved in sport, or simply to hang out on the, um, on the, the sports field like these young guys are doing. Um, a growth in school drama, the camera clubs, um, plays, excursions, um, a range of opportunities that kind of translated the shift towards increasing um, secondary schooling to social opportunities as well. Some adults, of course, worried that schooling did not really adequately prepare young people for their future lives. And uh, some, including Truby King, who is a very um, significant figure in New Zealand's kind of education, I guess, as a public intellectual working in this kind of area, as well as a mental hospital superintendent and the founder of the Plunkett Society, 
King, for instance, and a number of other men like him, and they were mostly men, were very keen that young women not escape the bounds of domesticity and gain too much freedom. As far as I can tell, though, the schools actually ignored this kind of um, you know, entreaty by these, these kinds of commentators and continued to teach girls often the same subjects as boys, even getting around the state tightening what girls could study. So in New Zealand, many um, young women would study Greek and Latin and mathematics and chemistry and those kind of things that young men uh, were also studying. So if the formal education system operated in this way with a kind of um, combination of uh, constraint and opening up of possibilities, what if the less kind of formal aspects. In terms of sex education, there again was a lot of concern that young people were learning too much, discovering strange new feelings, that sex education was perhaps um, pushing them along and um, leading them down paths that they perhaps should not go down. There were concerns about schoolboys circulating pornographic stories. Um, a kind of a reminder in a sense that you know some things are not entirely new i suppose the idea that sex education would lead to a tide of immorality um, and uh, crusaders turning up in schools and trying to tell young men that they should uh, behave themselves and sign um, abstinence pledges thinking in a sense about some of the international debates about sex education now you can kind of see that there's a definite thread of, cont of, of continuity there Adults worried about masturbation. They worried about boys being um, held hostage by quacks, sold, uh, selling them fake cures, uh, concerns about young people being overly sexual. And I'm going to read you a letter because this is one of my favorite intriguing little things. And this is a case of a 13-year-old um, a girl who, um, hung out down the wharves in Wellington quite a lot and she met, um, met sailors um, on the wharves and then kind of um, nipped off into the bushes with them. Um, and in, in, 19, in 1909, she wrote to a Mr. Johnson, who I think was only about 20. Um, she said, um, expect me down by the Challenger at 10 to 4 on Thursday afternoon. I'll be there even if it rains all day. This afternoon, I walked up Lambton Quay four times to see if I could see you in town, but I suppose you were not ashore on a Monday. I've been thinking of you ever since yesterday, and I'm longing to see you again. I must close now and remain with much love. When the police took her in, along with the sailor, she was actually fairly unrepentant. I visit every warship I can get on, she told police, and then she testified to her ability to hold her own. I go in for physical culture, she said, and I can box. And I don't want to suggest that this is, a, you know, is an entirely unproblematic kind of encounter, but I do think that there are some little clues in it about... Um, young women's expectations or some young women's expectations about a degree of kind of sexual self-assertion, which is perhaps something we wouldn't be expecting to see in 1909. And it wasn't unusual for young women to, to, um, to box or to go in for physical culture and to kind of work with and against these kind of social constraints.
Now, what I want to do just in the, in the last, all right, it's about five pages. And the last piece of this is I want to kind of play a little bit with the tensions around um, regimentation and free time. And think about again how what in one way is quite a regimented regime and another one allows possibilities for um, freedom and um, self-expression. So adults played an increasing amount of um, influence in regulating adolescent leisure through the early decades of the 20th century. This was a period where the, 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 the social norms around the chaperone had really started to weaken. Uh, they were weakening through the later part of the 19th century in New Zealand. Um, the idea that young people would not be chaperoned to events, but there would be other ways in which their, their leisure time would be, um, would be regulated. And religious organisations were really important in helping to organise young people's leisure time. Some small town Protestant churches set up youth groups and branches of the Young People's Society of Christian Endeavour, while the Wesley Young Men's Institute convened in Auckland in 1901. The Bible class movement catered for young New Zealanders over the age of 12 um, and taught kind of self-improvement, uh, debating on social issues. It was quite an active intellectual life, went along with, uh, with this. Now, the new Christian organisations sorted adolescents into groups by dividing the religious from the agnostic, the youngest from the oldest, and boys from girls. So there was a, a movement around segregating gender, gendered leisure time. This is quite a cute photo from one of the Bible class groups from the 1930s, Massed Mischief. I've got another one in just a moment um, of, of young women from the same kind of um, organisation. So, so this ideology of separate spheres for boys and girls was, was um, reinforced by the churches. But at the same time, the churches provided a lot of opportunities for young people to get together and conduct leisure or do leisure or enjoy leisure together. You had the kind of movement towards muscular Christianity within the, uh, within the Christian churches in New Zealand from just before the turn of the century. Uh, that idea of Bible verses plus playing sport plus showing yourself to be a good hearty man is something that was quite important. But as well as this control, uh, church groups also gave rise to a critical mass of young people. Those Bible class camps were absolutely massive, some of them, and you had race courses and school grounds full of tents, bringing together masses of, of um, young people, often from all around the country, certainly you know, towards uh, World War II. So there was a youthful mobility, a geographical mobility, and a degree of socialising um, that the few had, all, had enjoyed during the 19th century. And of course, we know of other movements too, um, as well as Bible class scouting roared into life in 1908. Uh, very soon after, it did so internationally. By at the end of 1909, there were 500 New Zealand scout troops which catered for 6,000 boys. Um, and Belich has suggested that scouting attempted to tame the young and prepare them for the self-sacrifice of war. 
It did. There's no doubt that that did happen. But boys also enjoyed hanging out together, rambling over the hills, soaking in swimming holes and generally kind of mucking about. The Girl Scouts, of course, began uh, too early on in the, in the 19th century. Baden-Powell's sister Agnes actually had a New Zealand um, kind of equivalent called Muriel, um, and Muriel got um, young girls involved in a kind of a movement that again was a really interesting combination of domesticity and femininity on the one hand, but adventuring and outdoor skills on the other. So girl guides learned about judo and maps and signaling and camping out. They studied photography, hut building, astronomy at the same time that their magazines were telling them how to maintain a um, a nice hourglass figure and um, an appropriate kind of physicality. So again, those two kind of um, tensions kind of going at, um, up against one another. And the colonial girl, that kind of outdoors girl, which is very much a sort of a signal of New Zealand um, young people's um, subjectivity, again, was quite compatible with that. And so here we have the babes, um, a pair of young women from 1930s from the um, Methodist movement and a number of kind of illustrations from their uh, scrapbooks and notebooks. Um, New Zealand girls um, had a very hearty appetite if um, these photographs are to, be, um, are to be kind of believed. So I mentioned before the importance of camping and the outdoors to New Zealand um, boys as well as girls. So I'd like to suggest in terms of these uh, formal organisations that these were not simply tools of the tight society, if in fact there was a tight society, but they also rounded up large numbers of young people, gave rise to a sense of solidarity, and like the factories and the schools, helped young people uh, come together en masse. There were, of course, very informal kinds of socialising. Um, the bicycle, I mentioned before, was something that more and more New Zealanders had access to by the early decades of the 20th century. There was an absolute massive boom in the numbers of bicycles produced in New Zealand during the 1930s, a, a doubling, then a tripling of numbers. And the bike road trip, where boys in particular would leave town for days at a time, cycle miles and miles and miles around the countryside, get away from adult oversight, away from adult authority. This was really a thing in New Zealand. And there's travelogue after travelogue, diary after diary, logged in the New Zealand archives of boys' adventures in the outdoors. Um, young people hung out together in the tea rooms. This was still pre-milk bars, which were the equivalent of kind of the um, American soda fountains. House-to-house um, -house visiting was popular, hanging out in bedrooms and the kind of things that young people kind of still do now. The commercial opportunities really started to ramp up at this kind of time. So the um, amusement arcade, which is the forerunner of what we used to call in the 1980s species parlours. Um, I'm not sure what the various international uh, parlance is for, for that now. 
Um, so we've got the amusement arcade, the um, fairground became a thing. And in New Zealand, most big cities had the speedway, which was massively popular with young people, boys in particular. So you can see a kind of a, a real kind of modernity based around speed and thrills and technology by the 30s in particular, really taking hold in New Zealand, that, that kind of um, desire for thrills and speed that symbolised the, 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 um, the modern age. A lot of young people were interested in things like aeroplane spotting in the 30s once they, you know, commercial flight became a thing. They, they're kind of intrigued with technology. Then later, Meccano and those other kind of technological things. So, so many of these examples so far, perhaps apart from the amusement arcades, tell of gender segregated leisure. But young men and women also um, intermingled like never before, particularly in one specific kind of New Zealand site. And I know this speaks to Australia too. That space is the beach. And I want you to have a really, really close look at this photo. And I'm actually going to stop talking for like 10 or maybe 20 seconds just while you have a look and see what you can kind of notice about this image that was taken either at the very late 1910s or the very early 1920s, probably um, the early 1920s. What I really like about this photograph is the sense of generational contrast. So if you look in the background, one of the things about beach going in New Zealand at this time is that adults wore way too many clothes. I mean, really, stockings, suits, coats even, the man in the sort of three quarters of the way along to the right-hand side of the screen, uh, formal wear in public. You compare that with what the four young people at the front of the photograph are wearing, and the answer is comparatively almost nothing, certainly in comparison with the overdressing that's going on. And an older generation of New Zealanders did wear hats. You went outside, you wore a hat. So the same thing goes with the beach. Go to the beach, wear a hat. But what we also have in here at the, in the front row, this is one of my favorite photos in the book. I actually wanted them to make it massive, like two page spread maybe with fold out sections, but that didn't happen. Because I think it really tells us, it tells us and shows us very clearly those kind of contrasts. So heterosocial leisure, for want of a better kind of a word, as the adults kind of hover uncomfortably, overdressedly in the background. Sombre adults were bearing witness, basically. One of the other real challenges, of course, to that notion of gender segregation was the cinema. And I could go on and on about the cinema. cinema. I'm, not, I'm not going to, but I, I will just um, pull out a few kind of features. This is the Regent, I think, in Wellington, one of the picture palaces of New Zealand. The movies in New Zealand were known as the flicks, or I would say the pictures, but someone who was in the 90s said to me, it is not the pictures, it was the pictures. Um, in New Zealand parlance, uh, 
the term everybody used, and seized imagination during the first uh, part of the 20th century. Interestingly, the first feature film was actually Australian. It was a story of Ned Kelly, and it was released in 1915 and was massively popular in New Zealand. By 1915, Aucklanders had a choice of 13 picture theatres. Or is that picture theatres? Yeah, picture theatres. The cinema catapulted American popular culture into New Zealanders' consciousness. Until then, it was very much a British kind of influence. So the silent movies bred a crop of glamorous stars, Greta Garbo, Clara Bow, Buster Keaton, Gary Cooper, Rudolf Valentino, um, Elmo Lincoln and Tarzan of the, the Apes, and Enid Markey as Jane. Young women were envious of Jane. One said... He must be very strong too, this is of Elmer Lincoln, because in one part he swung up and down by the branches and supplejacks with a girl clinging to him. Such fun being that girl, she said excitedly. This teenager was awesome, actually. Her diary, really lively young woman's writing, which unfortunately I don't have time to go into. Young, uh, young fans enjoyed the pictures, the young boys maybe not so keen, they said, on the romances. They said, one of them, I absolutely hate the love films, the senseless way the lovers gulp at each other for hours and sob and kiss and fall into one another's arms. Lunatics, bachelors and old maids might like them, but the majority to do not, for only subnormals would act in the way these lovers do. He was not very impressed by this whole business. So movies, of course, were a threat to the Titaners because they threatened to transform society in unpredictable kind of ways. The rise of the crook film or the crime film was, was a cause for some concern, the extravagant self-display and wanton displays of criminality. Films, of course, also moulded adolescent selfhood, and girls modelled themselves on their heroines. Um, very few, of course, could emulate the lifestyles offered in movie land, but they did adopt markers of modernity, such as bobbed hair and shorter skirts. After 1930s, the loquacious talkies replaced the um, silent films, and there was a whole kind of American language came into play. Gee, yeah, super, lousy. These are all 1930s terms coming into the New Zealand um, lexicon out of the, the US. One young woman wasn't very impressed. She was talking about her boyfriend, or rather a boy who thought he was, but she didn't really like him very much. She said he sounded so conventional and hackneyed all the time, dotting his remarks with hells and gods that I wanted to laugh at him. Poor Edgar, really. I mean, oh dear, oh dear. And then, of course... There was jazz. I thought I'd give you the full image of this photograph, which was taken in, in um, Port Albert, a very, very small settlement north of Auckland. You can see it's a bit of a mixed kind of social setting, in which adults and young people are also mingling, uh, but a kind of a, a lively sense of modernity, even in, in small town New Zealand. And just before I come to the conclusion, I, I want to just go to one of my favourite young women, Gladys Hadley, a 16-year-old Aucklander who embodied the new sensibility with great enthusiasm. Truth, a scandal-raking newspaper, told of her life under the headline, Flapper's startling story of gay doings in flat. 
And basically it turned out that Gladys hung out with a, uh, a young man at the Dixieland Dance Hall. She went for joy rides, had sex with him in his car, and again in his flat, and popped into New Zealand's hotels for a spot slang for a, a, um, a drink. And so commercial dance halls and hotels gave license to a modern kind of mobile life of the older adolescent girl and, and really tested kind of young, people, young people's standing in the eyes of kind of more conservative adults. Gladys was a young working woman. She worked for a real estate agent. She showed no interest in the tight society and really, her tale of joyride, sex and drinking lay bare the interplay of rigid rules and new freedoms that prevailed during that decade. Okay, so in conclusion, reasonably briefly, what we've got going on here is a swirling and a shifting and settling of gender norms during the early decades of the century. The flapper led the way in some respects. Advertisers appealed to femininity and bodily freedom of female desire, even as they constructed quite a normative kind of femininity. So both and, both and, really all the way along. Growing financial independence, first wave feminism, eugenic notions of national fitness, and the steadily expanding secondary school system were all important for adult girls' lives. Ideas about boyhood and the transition to manhood were quite complicated too. So young, young men lined up in rows. Um, many gripped their guns and dreamed of the ultimate sacrifice. But more than one form of masculinity held sway during the period. The grip of militarism was not total. The sissy boy, the jazz boy, the flapper, the young, the young um, boy off at, um, with his other kind of uh, drill buddies kind of hanging out at the exhibition. These were kind of possibilities. YMCA, the girl guides, the camps, the, 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 the campouts and, and so on. These competing social trends weakened the extent of gender segregation. Uh, church stalwarts were suspicious of the cinema, but what could they do? Many of their own parishioners hung out um, at the pictures and at the beach, maybe not always behind such a parasol as this. Um, parental oversight weakened even as the institution sought to tighten it. Everything, it seemed, happened at once. Many young people wanted to ease back, even as many adults tried to tighten New Zealand's social order, but not all did by any means. Gladys Headley took this to an extreme in Auckland, but others tried on a less threatening kind of modernity for size. The impulse, interestingly, didn't last a lifetime, though. The 1950s moral panics about young people in many ways were led by those who grew up during the 1920s. So maybe in some ways, either these young people became more uptight as they went on, or it was their, their, their compatriots looking on disapprovingly who then wielded the moral cudgels, uh, wielded the moral cudgels a little bit later on. But another group took, took shape in the interregnum between those generations, and they were the first teenagers, which I'm not going to talk about now, because if you want to have a bit of a look, here's the book. Um, and if anyone's keen, um, I, I suppose I have to confess the slightly sad story about this book, which is that um, 
too many copies were published and a whole pile of them, of them have just been sent off to be pulped, um, which I'm kind of disappointed about. But I did rescue 150 copies. And if anyone wants a copy, this is where I feel like an infomercial, right? If anyone wants a copy, go here to my website and stick that discount code in and it's 20 bucks and I'll post it with no postage. And some of these books can be rescued um, which I think is kind of nice. So I'm going to leave it there. I think it could be kind of cool time for questions. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, we're going to have two roving microphones. Um, so perhaps if the people with questions could introduce themselves before they um, ask Chris a question so that there can be some form of interaction, that would be great. Hi, Chris. It's uh, Simon Slight here from King's College London. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for your keynote and for sending me one of your books with a discount um, recently. <laughs> uh, much recommended to others. Um, my question is about young men, masculinity and consumption. Yep. Um, and it is, to what extent do you think that the effects masculinity and the snappy dressing that you mentioned earlier on in the keynote were only possible or acceptable once masculinity had been proved or asserted in other, other domains such as sports, speedway, war, or indeed through elite social status? Hey, thanks. Um, thanks, Simon. I think, I mean, in some ways, probably, my, my thought would be that often when they came to public attention, these snappier forms of masculinity were not massively well received by adult society, that, that, that the press were kind of a bit snippy about it. Um, and there was, an, there was sort of insinuations that it was a bit of a kind of a sissy thing to be involved in. Um, there was a thread actually of this goes back through the, the late 19th century as well, where there was a sense that um, these, these kind of um, somewhat effete forms of masculinity were associated with an over-vigorous form of heterosexuality. Um, but in some ways, I think the, um, the more kind of um, proven to be masculine um, young man who then adopted the style, that combination doesn't really appear too much. I guess what I couldn't get at, but I'm intrigued about really, is whether in fact um, young, young men among themselves were potentially more kind of um, accepting of that, that form of masculinity. It's, yeah, it is, it's a little bit hard to tell. Hello, Chris. Um, oh. I'm asking you a question. Hello, um, <laughs> my name's Joy Demusi. Oh, Melbourne hi, University. Joy. Hello. Yeah, hi. Um, <laughs> it's a bit awkward, you know. Uh, it's 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 kind of weird talking to a screen. Um, yeah, anyway, that's um, No, no, you've come across really well. You have great screen presence. Uh, terrific. <laughs> um, my question actually is about um, class, and yeah. I wonder if, if I could draw you out a little bit mm. um, and whether, whether you think it's a fair assessment to say that 
you've described the rise of middle class youth and culture. Yep. Um, I mean, you start with the flappers quite rightly. Mm, mm. And I don't think there's any question with all the examples you've used of modernity. Mm. There's no, I don't mm. think the arguments are, are mm. in question here. But, you know, the flappers were middle and upper class. And um, a lot of the reference points, or many of the reference points you make, you know, required a, quite a considerable disposable income. Mm. So, so my question is, you know, are you really looking in, at the end of the day at, at, a, at a bourgeois middle class culture that emerges at this time? Um, and would, it, would there be a different narrative or a parallel narrative or even inter, an intersecting mm. one, but mm. independent one of, of the working class, if I could, you know, use those terms? Mm. So it's really a, cl a question about mm. class and how that's shaped these issues. Yeah, hey, thanks, Joy. That, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I think in, in some ways the most visible kind of um, young people's culture in both the diaries and the media do tend to be more of a kind of a middle class, um, a middle class kind of milieu, I think. I think in some ways that the, the cinema kind of opens up some really interesting possibilities because the sources are a bit broader there. So for instance, I was talking to um, a woman who actually taught me how to use Skype when she was 92 and I was a great deal younger than that. And she would talk about, um, she worked in a factory as a young woman and she would talk about doing stuff like ironing her hair to try and make herself look like a movie star. Um, or um, young women turning up to the factories and then singing the kind of songs out of the movies that they had been watching. And so the, the cinema was, was, was accessible to work, young working class women. And so you get a sense of a kind of a, um, um, a, a make-do kind of consumer culture that, 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 that comes out of that kind of context. And that the glimmers of the boisterousness of uh, factory girls in Dunedin, for instance, and there's a kind of a, um, a record of that, which in some ways taps them into that kind of contradiction between a um, the kind of regulation of industrial capitalism and also the kind of freedoms that that kind of um, enabled. So I think there are there are some quite strong glimmers in terms of working class young people, uh, the stories of young men kind of hanging out in cinemas and fighting and and um, occasionally kind of getting into trouble with the law. Um, so there's a kind of an application of some of the same cultures across a kind of a class, um, the class strata in, in New Zealand. I guess what, yeah, what would be a really interesting comparison, and I haven't done this or perhaps don't have the means to do it, but would be between a society like the UK, which is perhaps more strongly class, um, Conscious and, and New Zealand, which has that myth of being sort of an egalitarian country, even though we know that it wasn't. Um, in terms of just quickly, in terms of sources, one of the things I noticed was that diaries tended to be written by middle class young people, but the memoir was a form that, that uh, people who grew up uh, with, with working class parents tended to adopt later on in their lives and they would look back at uh, their fondness for the speedway and the cinema and tramping and all of those other kinds of things. So I think to some extent it's possible to nuance this by class and in other, in other ways the sources do have a middle class bias to them. 
Hi, um, thanks so much for your amazing talk. It was fascinating. My name is Anna Cardencoin from the University of Manchester. Um, I wanted to historicize the term teenager. Yep. And um, if you could talk us through at what point in New Zealand that term is used. Um, and the other thing is, where do the Maori people fit in your story? Yeah. Uh, because most of your photographs mm. were of white people. Mm. And I wondered what is um, Maori representation of their modernity and their mm. youth culture, um, but also some of the cultural pride in um, Maori culture. Mm. And thinking of probably one of New Zealand's most famous Maoris being Kiri Takanoa, mm. who was born in the 40s and then very quickly becomes um, an extremely famous person mm. um, in New Zealand culture. So mm. that's in the opera world, which is a bit different perhaps <laughs> yeah. to youth culture. Yeah. Okay, well maybe just quickly on the second and then I'll, I'll go to the first. I could talk about the first for a while, but I'll try and compress both of these. And it's very, very difficult in New Zealand finding sources for Māori um, before the Second World War because Māori were largely uh, rural, rurally based in New Zealand until the Second World War. So there's a, in the book, there's, a, there's quite a rich and interesting history of that kind of urbanisation movement and the, the move into cities of young Māori, which was the sort of milieu that, that um, Kirita Kanawa uh, grew up in. So in a way I've got, I've pulled out a few bits and pieces where I can. Māori were not particularly visible in the news media either until the 19, um, until the 1950s. So in, in many ways it's been seen as a kind of post-war history. I would, in the 19th century it's a matter of digging through some fairly unsatisfactory anthropological um, information and, and, and not getting terribly far. So there's definitely more to be done on that. Now, in terms of the teenager, the term teen actually turns up um, someone in their teens. That turns up in New Zealand in the 1840s and then appears roughly through the rest, in that vein through the rest of the 19th century. It's very much... Um, it's more modern than we might think because there are associations of being young and vigorous and energetic and a bit flighty and all of that kind of stuff attached to that 19th century term teen. The teenager in New Zealand appears very strongly during the 1940s um, and occasionally during the 1920s and 30s. So the actual teenager term is one that comes quite slowly into, into view. In the 19th century, the terms that were more common were youth to describe boys and girls to describe girls. And one of the things I'm really keen on doing, and if anyone wanted to email me any bits and pieces, there's the address, that would be really cool, is actually thinking about the ways in which such terms as youth and adolescence are quite strongly gendered because my sense is that in New Zealand, youth was very much a masculine term, but adolescence uh, related to both boys and girls. So there's a really interesting uh, gendered shift around some of those terms. If the teenager as an idea is quite strongly connected with consumer culture, which much of the American literature suggests, then maybe it could be that boys were the first youths and girls were the first teenagers. But there's a bit of kind of 
a bit more work to be done there. And I know I've diverged from your question. Yeah, but yeah, I, I would love to know more about Māori young people, but it's one of those prior to the um, urban, rural urban shift, it's quite tricky to find out about. I can see Yorick trotting up the steps. Hi, hi Chris. Hi, Yorick. You knew this was coming, and I'm <laughs> going to ask a very predictable question <laughs> You gestured to the intimacies between boys and girls. Yeah. And I was wondering if you might say something about same-sex possibilities and romances between boys and boys and girls and girls and the way that that fits into both this idea of tightening and loosening, these ideas of social mobilities, as well as these kind of ideas of emergent, the emergent ideas of kind of modernism and modernity. That's not at all a predictable question. Yes, it is. Um, okay, so I think in New Zealand, the, the concept of homosexuality is not really one that appears in those kind of terms until the 1940s. And there's a kind of a degree of, um, in fact, if I go back, if I hit on there, I might end up at the at this little picture here, which you might have noticed, um, actually, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, slideshow, on current slide. Um, you might have noticed this little image here, and, and this is from the 1920s. There's not really an awful lot of focus in the legal, um, in the legal material on sex between boys, for instance, and there's very little discussion of intimacy between girls, although there is a kind of a hangover of the romantic friendship ideal that lasts as long as the 1930s. So the idea of schoolgirls having crushes on one another and on their teachers is something that is still kind of circulating in New Zealand in the 1930s. The state, the becomes more interested in sex between boys in the 1940s and in terms of intimate relationships between boys there's not a lot of evident kind of policing of that either in a in a legal sense or in a social sense and so that means that there are uh, spaces and opportunities for these kind of intense relationships to take shape in a society where the lines around different forms of sexuality aren't particularly well, um, well kind of delimited, I think. So it's quite a transitional kind of period in a sense. Um, I mean, if I'm going up to 1940 here, then um, yeah, there's not an awful lot um, that's visible at that kind of time. I think really the wave of interest happens sort of after this kind of um, after this kind of period. In terms of modernity, um, in a way, I don't know. I think I think the opportunities sort of slid under the radar somewhat, and. And, and, and same-sex kind of intimacy wasn't sort of central to the way that modernity was packaged in and uh, talked about in the same way that the, that the 
um, vigorous heterosexuality of the flapper kind of became a, um, an object of concern. So I think, yeah, I think there are differences in terms of what sort of set of forms of sexuality came to public attention. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Vince DiGirolamo from uh, uh, City University of New York. Um, I enjoyed your talk very much. I was interested in, I, mean, I, I appreciated the sort of reciprocal dynamic that you, that you uh, articulated and the, the kind of uh, dialectical uh, movement of these, of these institutions. I'm wondering though if there's something that is driving these, this cultural change. Is it the youth themselves who are demanding more freedom? Is it the media or, or a global international kind of uh, consumerism or, or the, the, the creation of these products that are, that are uh, shaping the culture and, and urging young men and women to, to experiment and do things? Is it the government? Is there, is there a driving force to this uh, uh, cultural change, this uh, liberalization? Thanks, thanks, Vince. It's a really interesting question. I mean, my answer is going to sound really silly because actually I think it's all of those things. I think you've got some unintended consequences about the way that, that adults are seeking to organise young people in an attempt to um, exert a degree of kind of control, but th there's a set of unintended consequences coming out of that in terms of young people's opportunities. There's very much a kind of a sense of the urban be being really important here, and that's partly about uh, it's partly about consumer culture, but it's also about a growing um, massification of young people in urban spaces. And so, for instance, the kind of uh, street corners that the Telegraph boys are hanging out on, which become young people's spaces partly because of the, um, the growth and complexity of the city. Uh, you have that consumer culture, which is, is sort of really appearing and being driven along and targeted at young, um, at young women. And then you've got a sort of a series of adult responses, which are also involved in shaping the form that young people's cultures take, uh, sometimes directly in the case of the militaristic part, or sometimes um, indirectly. So, for instance, the growth of the cinema. So, even I mean, it sounds a bit of a cop out to say this, really, but I think it is. It's multifactorial. Like, there's actually a lot um, of interconnecting um, forces, some tensions. Uh, that, that themselves are productive in a range of different ways. So I think, I think there isn't a driving force, but I think we can see um, a set of kind of interconnected factors. In terms of the international influence, I think that is actually quite significant. Not only the cinema, but New Zealand actually had a very international print culture from the late 19th century. And so New Zealanders would read their own magazines, but they were um, bulk importing of um, general interest magazines, of things like boys and girls school annuals, particularly from the United Kingdom. By the 1940s, there was a big, uh, a big importing of comics, mostly from the US. 
one of the things about New Zealand I think that's quite interesting historically is in some ways it's really isolated, but in other ways it's very much been, been tapped into um, global flows of, of, um, of people and information. Um, a lot of travel through the Pacific. And you also get a sense of um, young people's culture being more, um, looking more modern in New Zealand in the port cities, because it's the, the ports are those kind of gateways through which those people and ideas and consumer products actually move. So yeah, there's a real kind of geographical aspect to it, both in terms of New Zealand's place in the world and also uh, different parts of, uh, um, of New Zealand, which of course is a long and skinny kind of sea-going port-based sort of economy, really. Okay, I'm, I'm Mary Claire Martin from the University of Greenwich. Many thanks. Um, oh. I was really interested. Hi, um, I was really interested in your point about comparisons with the UK. Yeah. Um, but my real question is about schooling. Mm. So I wrote down that you said there were 19,000 children at secondary school over 13 in 1900. Yeah. So when does secondary schooling become compulsory? Because the UK, it's not till 1944. In a sense, it's, um, you know, to have actual separate secondary schools. Yeah. Yeah. even though the school leaving age is 14 from yeah. 1918. So could you just say a bit, and um, um, what proportion of the population is that 19,000? So you've got the figure of 19,000. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah, I really. Um, just to get a sense of how many young people actually are at secondary school and, mm. you know, when does that become universal? Yeah, so, so New Zealand had, uh, not only was secondary schooling above 14 not compulsory for a long time, but it wasn't actually free until the 1940s. And so if you wanted to stay on, you actually either needed a scholarship or, or wealthy parents. So it was really the work of the first Labour government uh, during the 1930s and 40s that, that really extended that um, access to secondary schooling to young people. What happened uh, prior to that is that the high schools early on in the 19th century were actually not really high schools at all. They were, you know, multi kind of level. One of the things that you notice in New Zealand as this as the proportion of New Zealanders over the age of 13 and 14 goes up is you actually have the emergence of the high school. So you've got adolescent young people grouped together. In earlier periods, it was not, um, you know, not grouped together, not free. So you would often stay on at an extended primary school until later. So I think your point's really important. I think the growing numbers of uh, young people at secondary schools and, or, or rather, in schooling during their secondary years, and then the growth of the high school in New Zealand, uh, which really sort of began in the, 19, um, in the 1920s in the way that we'd understand the modern high school. And then uh, the massive, massive proportionate increase, of course, was during the 1950s. But there was a steady increase in, um, in, in, yeah, in the years prior to that. But the, 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 the fact you had to pay was actually quite a constraining factor, I think. Yeah, of course. So, because Selena Todd argues that until 
1944, you know, most young people left school as soon as they could in the UK mm. at 14 mm. to go to work. Mm. So can you say anything comparable about New Zealand? I think it's fair to say that until the 1940s, um, that, would, that would be right. Um, people often, or young people often escaped even, even below the age at which, um, at which you should still really be there. I think um, young working class people uh, could work in factories over the age of 14, so that was actually a real prospect for them. Um, what I haven't done, and you can probably tell because I'm being slightly tentative, what I haven't done is um, an analysis of young people at high school age in relation to the total population, which actually your comment um, is making me think that a more detailed statistical analysis would actually be really quite helpful in terms of tracking that more, more carefully and being able to then compare against um, the UK and other places. So yeah, I, that would be quite useful to do, I think. Well, thanks very much. Um. Kia ora, Chris, Hugh Morrison speaking. Hello, Hugh. Oh, yeah. Good, thanks. Um, can I just, I know that for you it's um, getting late. So one last question. Can you just push a little bit more the connections between uh, religious contexts and young people's intimacy in terms of forming uh, relationships, friendships and romantic? Okay, yeah, yeah. I think, um, I mean, one of the things that struck me as I was working through this is that the significance of religious organisations uh, in terms of young people's cultures in New Zealand, I mean, it was actually incredibly significant. Uh, what, since you've kind of opened the door for me, Hugh, I was thinking of a little wee snippet of one of the, um, one of the young women who was at a Bible class camp and uh, girls and boys were quite firmly segregated. And in fact, the, the whole kind of campus of this camp, this was during the 1910s, I think, was actually not conducive to intimacy um, between boys and girls, although it was conducive to intimacy between young women. And there, and there are stories emerging of um, very intense kind of relationships. And I think even um, one of the leaders of the camp playing kissing games or something like that, which was quite intriguing. Uh, but but, but one, one girl who actually went down to the gate far away from the rest of the camp in order to meet a young man who was obviously coming from a similar kind of arrangement uh, further away. So there's that kind of sense of um, an attempt to, to regulate opposite sex encounters while also opening up opportunities for same sex ones. In fact, um, Alison Laurie's really interesting history of lesbian relationships in New Zealand suggests that by the 1940s, quite a number of young women who became aware of their attraction to other young women did kind of um, get to know other young women and um, become romantically involved with them in Bible class settings. So again, there's that kind of sense of um, possibility produced by bringing a lot of young people together. So, and again, I like those stories too, because they're, they sort of cut across the grain a little bit. 
um, which is quite nice. There are also stories in terms of young men and young women, you know, when there were Bible class events and they were both gender kind of events and everyone would be a bit sort of giggly and um, embarrassed and a bit awkward and you can just sort of totally imagine that really. So yeah, I think there were, in terms of intimacy, I think there were, um, there certainly were possibilities there. Although sometimes happening again in, um, in contradistinction to those adult attempts to um, perhaps be regulated. But I love that, you know, again, it's that kind of unintended consequences thing, I think. Um, thank you so much, Chris. I know it's getting on to nine o'clock on your side of the Tasman. Um, so I will wrap up and ask everybody to once again, thank our keynote speaker, Chris Prickle. Um, and we will um, let you uh, log off and go and have a wee cup of tea. Um, 